0: Once more in the Acts of the Apostles, and please turn into me with me to Acts chapter seven. Acts chapter seven. The focus of the sermon is going to largely rest on verses fifty-one through uh, chapter eight, verse one. But it's been a while since uh, we've read through the entirety of Acts seven, so. I want to do that, and I want you to keep this question in your mind. What is Stephen driving at in this sermon? Why does he use the analogies from Israel's history that he uses? Why does he use the scripture references that he uses? Try to, try to see what sort of argumentation that Stephen is having here in Acts chapter 7. So let's Read God's holy, inspired word as we find it in this passage. So the high priest said, Are these things so? And he said, Brethren and fathers, listen. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he dwelt in Haran, and said to him, Get out of your country and from your relatives, and come to a land that I will show you. Then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. And from there, when his father was dead, he moved him to this land in which you now dwell. And God gave him no inheritance in it, not even enough to set his foot on. But even when Abraham had no child, he promised to give it to him for a possession and to his descendants after him. But God spoke in this way, that his descendants would dwell in a foreign land, that they would bring them into bondage and oppress them four hundred years. And the nation to whom they will be in bondage I will judge." said God. And after that, they shall come out and serve me in this place. Then he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham begot Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob begot the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, becoming envious, sold Joseph into Egypt. But God was with him and delivered him out of all his troubles and gave him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt and all his house. Now famine and great trouble came over all the land of Egypt and Canaan, and our fathers found no sustenance. But When Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers first. And The second time, Joseph was made known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to the Pharaoh. Then Joseph sent and called to his father Jacob and all his relatives to him, 75 people. So Jacob went down to Egypt and he died. He and our fathers, they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham bought for a sum of money from the sons of Hamar, the father of Shechem. But when the time of the promise drew near, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt, till another king arose who did not know Joseph. This man dealt treacherously with, all, with our people, and oppressed our forefathers, making them expose their babies so that, that they might not live. By this time Moses was born and was well-pleasing to God, he was brought up in his father's house for three months. But when he was set out, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was a mighty man in words and deeds. Now when he was forty years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. For he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand. They did not understand. The next day he appeared to two of them as they were fighting and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brethren. Why do you wrong one another? But he who did his neighbor wrong pushed him away, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me, as you did the Egyptian yesterday? Then, at this saying, Moses fled and became a dweller in the land of Midian, where he had two sons. When forty years had passed, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire in a bush, in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. When Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight, and as he drew near to observe, the voice of the Lord came to him, saying, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses trembled and dared not look. Then the Lord said to him, Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their groaning, and have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge, is the one God sent to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He brought them out after he had shown wonders and signs to the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness forty years. This is that Moses who said to the children of Israel, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear. This is he who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers, the one who received the living oracles to give to us. "...whom our fathers would not obey, but rejected. And in their hearts they turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, "'Make us gods to go before us. As for this Moses who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him.' They made a calf in those days, offered sacrifices to the idol, and rejoiced in the works of their own hands. Then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets." Did you offer me slaughtered animals and sacrifices during forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You also took up the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of your god Remphan, images which you made to worship, and I will carry you away beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tabernacle of wilderness in the wilderness, as he appointed, instructing Moses to make it according to the pattern that he had seen, which our fathers, having received it in turn, also brought with Joshua into the land possessed by the Gentiles, whom God drove out before the face of our fathers until the days of David, who found favor before God and asked to find a dwelling for the God of Jacob. But Solomon built him a house. However, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Has my hand not made all these things? Now we come to the focus of our text here this morning. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised and hardened ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. So do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? and They killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the mur- betrayers and murderers who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed at him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God, and said, Look, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man is standing at the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and ran at him with one accord. They cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Now Saul was consenting to his death. As we work through the Bohemoth, that is Acts 7 and Stephen's sermon. We've noted several key points. We've noted how Stephen responds to the accusations that he has blasphemed God, Moses, and the temple. We've seen that he's rather easily refuted these false allegations. We have seen how he paved the way for the persecuted church to go out through the world, enjoying the freedom that they have in Christ regarding worship, that they no longer need the temple to worship. Yet, underneath all that argumentation, another argument is being advanced. Stevens, on the one hand, defending that he is guiltless of these allegations, that he is innocent. He is also arguing that these Jews who have accused him and are trying him, they are the true blasphemers of God. Here we have this thrust of, of Stephen's application that we have in our text. The Jews have followed in the tradition of their fathers as they rejected the prophets of God. When they rejected Jesus Christ as the Messiah, they committed blasphemy. As we look at Stephen charging the Jews with blasphemy, as we look at him turning that accusation around and saying, no, you guys are guilty of this. I'm innocent, but you are very much guilty. I want us to specifically apply this to the ongoing reality of wolves being in the church. On this earth, we are the church militants. We are the church at war. Paul told the Ephesian elders to engage in warfare against wolves. We read in Acts 20, verse 29, For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also, from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears." These Jews who brought Stephen to trial were wolves. They manipulated and twisted words. They got false witnesses to try to convict Stephen of death. And they did this so that they could retain their power and authority. They had more love for themselves and for God. And so, as we consider the Jews' rejection of Jesus Christ, let us consider specifically how the rejection gives us three characteristics of wolves. And the first characteristic of a wolf is that he is an idolater. In Acts 7, verse 51, something drastically changes in Stephen's sermonic style. He started off the sermon slowly and deliberately. He navigated the history of the people of Israel with care. As you read the sermon, you likely are getting relaxed as you hear this history that you are likely very familiar with. You're, you're, you get comfortable and you sit and relax as you hear him recount this history. But This suddenly changes in verse 51 as Stephen speaks directly to his audience and says, You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. Not given any reason for this very drastic shift that we see in Stephen's sermon. But perhaps Stephen was good at reading his audience. He could see that The Jews were were starting to understand what he was arguing and putting forth. And as he sees them starting to understand that, he sees them getting more and more angry, more and more belligerent, and he realizes, I only have a short time to wrap up this sermon. And so he gets right to the the heart of the matter. The heart of the matter being that they are hypocrites, that they are uncircumcised, that they are stiff-necked, Now if you know your Bible you are probably somewhat familiar with this term stiff neck that Stephen uses. There's an agricultural reference to speak about stubbornness. Back in those days, if you wanted to pull a wagon or, or use a plow, you would uh, uh, use oxen. you would put a, a yoke on a team of oxen and a, a yoke for, for the children that's, that's a, a big wooden beam that you would place on the neck of the oxen and that would distribute the weight on those oxen so that you can attach an implement to it and then you have the strength of the ox use uh uh, pressing against that yoke to move the wagon or the plow now you were the farmer you would need to steer those oxen and you'd have an ox good, which was a, a rather long stick. And if you wanted the ox to go one way, you would tap their neck. If you wanted them to stop, you would tap the neck in a different way. And the ox would, would learn how to respond appropriately to that, that stick. Now, a stiff-necked ox is an ox that doesn't respond to those taps by the farmer. It's It's stubborn. It will not obey its master. And a stiff-necked ox not only would cause more harm to itself because it could not be tamed, but it was also useless for the farmer. And so to be called stiff-necked is in no way a positive term, but it's it's a term that denotes intense and repeated stubbornness. And the first time this word was used to speak of the people of God was in Exodus 32, verse 9. And you'll likely recall some of the historical context to Exodus 32. It's it's a context we're all familiar with. God has called Israel out of Egypt. He has delivered them from the house of bondage. They are no longer slaves, but they are now free. In Exodus 19, as the people of Israel are gathered before Mount Sinai, The Lord declares to them that you are a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Then in Exodus 20, the Lord gives his law to his people, the Ten Commandments. Yet, after all that, Israel goes and rejects the covenant that the Lord had made with them. They reject that covenant by making a golden calf And worshipping it in direct violation of the first and second commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. And you shall not make for yourself any graven image of anything in heaven above or the earth beneath or the waters under the earth. Israel rejected the Lord with stubbornness and rebellion. And after that great sin... God told Moses in Exodus 32, verse 9 through 10, I have seen this people, and indeed, it is a stiff-necked people. As the first time Israel is called stiff-necked in all of Scripture. And when this term is applied to Israel, it's not just a term that speaks of Israel's stubbornness but it also references the impacts of idolatry on them. Israel was created after the image of God. In fact, all of us are created after the image of God. However, when one pursues idols, when one pursues idolatry, The image of God gets more and more darkened. And in Israel's pursuit of idolatry, they started resembling stubborn oxen more than the image of their creator. It should not escape our attention that the first time Israel is called stiff-necked is in connection with them worshiping a golden calf. Just like the golden calf had a stiff, gold-encrusted neck. So they had a stiff, rebellious neck. Stephen is likely drawing the parallel here between this this history of of Israel in Exodus 3-2 and this name stiff-necked, which you see in verse 51. Because you'll remember that in verse 41 of Acts 7, he says, And they made a calf in those days, offered sacrifices to the idol, and rejoiced in the work of their own hands. That history would already be in the minds of his audience. Then they hear this word stiff-necked. They start feeling the weight of that accusation. Stephen is saying, you guys are just like those before Mount Sinai who rejected Moses and the Lord. And stiff-neckedness is a consequence of idolatry referred to over and over again in Scripture. Those who worship idols become like the idols they worship. We see it in Psalm 115, verse 8, where the psalmist says that those who make idols are like the idols they make. We see it also in Isaiah 6, verse 10, where we read that because of Israel's idolatry, when Isaiah would preach to them, they would become like idols. God tells Isaiah, make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and shut their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return and be healed." even calling the jews stiff-necked he's not just saying they're stubborn he's not just saying they're rebellious but he's saying they are pursuing idolatry now this begs the question how were the jews in the days of the early church being idolatrous what is happening here that they're being idolatrous Because if you know your your New Testament, you know that the Jews at this time weren't worshipping idols. They weren't worshipping gods of stone and wood. They had rejected that. They they seemed to have learned the lesson from the Babylonian captivity that they're no longer to worship these gods of stone and wood. But now... During the time of Christ, their idolatry is much more sophisticated. They have this sophisticated idol of themselves. Stephen says in Acts seven, verse forty two, verse forty-three, then God turned and gave them up to the worship gave them up to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Do you offer me slaughtered animals and sacrifices during forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You also took up the tabernacle of Moloch, the star of your god Rempham, images which you made to worship, and I will carry you away beyond Babylon. Why did Stephen use that quote? He could have used many other quotes, but Stephen specifically uses this quote from the prophets demonstrate that idolatry isn't something about israel's past it's not something that's that's just back there in the history that that israel's trying to to forget now stephen uses that quote to illustrate the reality that the jews were still idolaters that yes there are idolaters in their past but there are idolaters in the present And so the Jews are being idolatrous in their self-love and self-worship. They love their honor more than God's honor. Recall, Recall how that in Acts 5 when the apostles were preaching and great crowds were following them and listening to them. The Jews were filled with indignation as a crowd was filled with the Holy Spirit and starts worshiping and praising God. That wasn't the reality for the Jewish leaders. Instead, they're filled with indignation. That indignation sprang not from a holy zeal, but it sprang from an envious spirit of jealousy. The Jews sought, they loved the praise of men. It's illustrated over and over again in the gospel accounts of Jesus' life. Jews valued the praise of men, and so even though they, they, they often had many desires to get rid of Christ, they, they did not do so because of fear of the people. These men did not act out of religious principle. They did not act out of a love for God's Word. But instead acted out of their own desire for honor and praise. Whatever could ensure that they continued to be honored and respected by the people. Well, that's what they would do. So Jesus said in Matthew 6, talking about... The Jewish leaders love for power and authority, love for honor. He says, don't be like them. Instead, when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the street that they may be seen by men. Jews loved, the Jewish leaders loved their position more than God's law. Their morality was not a desire to be conformed to God's word. Instead, it was a desire to do anything that helped their position. This is clearly evident in how they murdered Jesus Christ. Without any reason, they condemned an innocent man to death. They gave him a show trial with false witnesses. The gospel writers go to great lengths to stress this point. Oh, even the centurion said this was a righteous man. The saddest aspect of their murder of Christ is that Acts gives us no indication that they had any remorse over what they did. Acts gives us no indication that they had remorse for murdering an innocent man. Instead, they keep trying to perpetuate the awfulness of their crimes. They do not repent, though Peter, John, and the rest of the apostles keep calling them to repentance. Instead, they get more and more infuriated. The apostles would preach the risen and ascended Christ. The Jews were self-worshippers. Is that not true of wolves in the church today? They are idolatrous. They worship themselves and so devour the people of God. Under a guise of religiosity, they achieve the exaltation of themselves. They manipulate you to think that you are worshiping God, but instead you are allowing the worship of themselves. Make people believe that the church would be nothing without them, making themselves more important than than Jesus Christ or the Holy Spirit. These wolves set themselves in the place of God, demanding all sorts of extra-biblical rules and regulations. They're narcissists, manipulating the sheep to serve their needs rather than the needs of Christ you do not do what they want. They give you the silent treatment. They distance themselves from you so that you come back begging to them and more compliant than at first. So church, be on guard against those who puff themselves up, who point to your need of them more than your need of Christ. Know that a faithful shepherd will always lead you to the good shepherd. This begs the question, how is this idolatry possible? How, How is this idolatry possible, especially in those who are leaders in the church? Well, the second mark of a wolf that we see from Acts 7 is that he is a hypocrite. Stephen does not just call the Jews stiff-necked, but he also says that they are uncircumcised in heart and ears. This word uncircumcised is a reference to Leviticus, and, and we, we see that reference in Leviticus 26, verse 41. This passage, the blessings of obedience and the curses for disobedience are given. And read that if Israel repents and their uncircumcised hearts are humbled, then God will remember his covenant with Jacob. And so to have an uncircumcised heart and ear implies that one has been circumcised, but does not have the reality of that circumcision, does not have the reality of for which circumcision was a sign. Circumcision was to be a sign that someone was part of the covenant community. That they were lovers of God, that they were part of the kingdom of priests and holy nation. But to be uncircumcised of heart and ear meant that they simply had a sign but no reality. And this would be like somebody today who had a forged passport for the United States. He has a sign that he is a citizen of the United States of America. He has the documentation, but it's a lie. He is pretending to be someone he is not. He has no citizenship in the United States. but In fact, he's a, he's a spy from another country. That's ultimately what a hypocrite is. A hypocrite pretends to be somebody, but has no substance to that claim. He puts on a good show, but that's all that there is. Now, How is this so true of those who are falsely accusing Stephen? Well, the Jews claimed to be lovers of God. In fact, they loved God supposedly so much that they were willing to go to war for him. They were willing to haul Stephen before this court and accuse him, not just of blaspheming Moses, but of blaspheming God as well and his temple. They were prestigious, heretic hunters the average Jew would look at them and say, look at their zeal for God. Look at their passion for the truth. Look at their knowledge of Scripture. They're religious leaders. They're the, the true lovers of God. And yet, if one examines their actions in light of of Scripture, and not just in light of, of this cultural religiosity, these cultural ideas of, of what a true lover of God was, one will quickly see that for all their claims to be lovers of God, they were shutting the love of God off from others. Recall how they commanded the apostles not to preach or teach in the name of Jesus Christ. Think about what that meant. Here, the only Savior for man was being proclaimed faithfully by the apostles, the one who was promised from Genesis 3 all the way out through Malachi. He had finally come, and he had proclaimed the good news of, of redemption and salvation. And these Jews who are saying, well, we're the true followers of Moses. They're saying, that man, that man Jesus Christ, is nothing but a blasphemer. There's no hope to be found in in the long-awaited Messiah, the one who, who died and rose again, the one who had showed so many signs and wonders. Well, don't believe in him. Jews were telling sinners and sufferers to go elsewhere for help. And what cruelty and wickedness there was in that. It was like telling a man who's dying of thirst not to drink water, but go and drink poison instead. Jews were telling men who were dying in their sins to go and try to, to just be like, like them. Be like them in, in their passion for God's law. And, and maybe you would be saved. They were opposing that beautiful declaration of Peter when he told Jesus, to whom shall we go? You have the words of everlasting life. They oppose those words by saying, come to us. We have the words of everlasting life. Just be sure you honor us. You praise us in the synagogues. You honor our authority. Do you honor our authority over the authority of God and God's Word? Come to us for salvation. Because the yoke of our salvation, while it's, it's not easy, indeed it's hard, it's the true yoke. Those who oppose the salvation of God and yet pretend to be lovers of God are nothing more than hypocrites. They are wolves. Wolves are hypocrites. They rejoice in the worship of self because they have no heart that desires to worship God. Instead, they propagate. They set up a false image. They have no substance to their claims to be lovers of God. They want everything to appear right with them. They want others to praise them for their godliness. They yearn for the benefits of Christianity, but do not desire the sacrifice of serving Christ. They are there to get their wages, but not there to lay down their lives Instead, they cruelly demand the lives of others. They demand the life of Christ so that they can tread upon his sacrifice and use the death of Christ for their own selfish gain. They demand the life of God's people so that they can keep their honor. They prey upon others so that their lusts and desires can be satisfied. They persecute and kill. And so, church, be aware of hypocrites. Should have a, a real odiousness when we think of a hypocrite. Claims to be someone, but is deceiving and preying upon others. Beware of those who say one thing and do another. Beware of those who point to self rather than point to Christ. Finally, wolves are resistors. Wolves resist the work of the Spirit. Stephen says, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. Wolves resist the Holy Spirit because he is someone they cannot control. Wolves love to control. They manipulate, they tell lies, they bend and twist the truth so that they can control If they cannot control, they resist. What does it mean to resist the Holy Spirit? Well, it means to reject the faithful preachers of the gospel. It means to reject God's word. We see that in our text when Stephen jumps from speaking about his accusers to the history, once again, of the people of Israel. He says, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? Has given us an example of those who resisted the Holy Spirit. Those who resisted the Holy Spirit persecuted the fathers. They killed the prophets. And notice that Stephen's language has, has drastically changed in this sermon in just one little word. Throughout Stephen's sermon, he has again and again said, Our fathers. He said, Our fathers. Our fathers. He, he sought to relate to the Jews saying, we have this common heritage. Joseph was my father. The patriarchs were our fathers. Moses was our father. Abraham was our father. David was our father. But now he distances himself, and he says, your fathers. Your fathers are the ones who resist the Spirit. Recall how he relates the history of Joseph and how the patriarchs had become envious and sold Joseph into Egypt. It's a very deliberate picking of an aspect of the history of the people of Israel. The patriarchs rejected Joseph, and yet God had chosen Joseph to be their savior, their deliverer from the worldwide famine. God had chosen Joseph to preserve his church in a time in world history where they could have been snuffed out. Recall, too, how how Israel had rejected Moses. Not once, not twice, but over and over again. We read in, in Acts 7, verse 23 through 29, this history. Now, when Moses was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. For he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand. But they did not understand. And the next day he appeared to two of them as they were fighting and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brethren. Why do you wrong one another? But he who did his neighbor wrong pushed him away saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? Then at this saying, Moses fled. Moses tried to be their deliverer from the bondage of the Egyptians, but they rejected him. And Stephen emphasizes how this was a continual aspect of the people of Israel. He says in verse thirty-five, This Moses, whom they rejected, but saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? is the one God sent to be ruler and deliverer by the hands by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. Israel's history was a history of them resisting the Holy Spirit, resisting the prophets that God sent them again and again, that the good and gracious God sent to deliver them. Jews had heard the gospel again and again. He had continued to be stiff-necked, continued to be rebellious, how true this was of the Jewish leaders in Jesus' day. We you know, at least from the age of 12, they had been debating with Christ, and then Christ had won those debates in the temple. The Jewish leaders had, had heard the gospel proclaimed from the mouth of Christ again and Again. They had heard how Christ was a fulfillment of the Scriptures. They had that truth clearly presented to them. And if it was wasn't clear before Christ died, it certainly was abundantly clear after Christ died and rose again and ascended up into heaven. If these men truly knew the scriptures. They would know that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. But instead, they resist. They resist the good news. They rejected the signs and wonders, the very clear and evident demonstrations of the power of God. They rejected the clear reasoning from Scripture. And in their rejection, they continued that long history of persecution. Valuing their their cultural ideas of religiosity over what the Word of God said. I'm going to the point of killing the prophets, killing Christ. And this is why I had us read Genesis 4 with the account of Cain killing his brother Abel. Abel was the first martyr of the church. This is also why I had us read 2 Chronicles 36. We all know that Genesis is the first book of the Bible, but the last book of the Hebrew Bible is not Malachi, but it is actually 2 Chronicles. So when Jesus says in Luke 11, verse 51, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the temple, he's quoting an episode that happened in 2 Chronicles, and specifically 2 Chronicles 24, verse 20. We also see hints of this, the, the continuous persecution in that chapter we read in Second Chronicles 36. And in essence, Jesus is saying the whole history of Scripture can almost be summed up in saying, you kill the prophets I sent to you. And the Jews would be another example of this. When they would pick up stones to stone Stephen, wolves resist the Spirit. The Jews resisted Spirit, and today wolves still resist the Spirit when they do not proclaim the whole counsel of God. They pick and choose passages to preach their man-made doctrines and morality. They twist scripture to support their lies and doctrines of demons. They might pick certain Christian terminology, certain historic terminology, but change the definition of how that has been commonly understood. They might stop using certain words but continue teaching the same false doctrine just so people will find the lie more palatable. So guard yourselves against such men by filling your minds with Scripture, by being students of this book, knowing what this book says, and knowing intimately who your Savior is. One of the greatest protection against wolves is having intimate relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. It is knowing the voice of your shepherd, your one true shepherd, of knowing the voice of Jesus Christ who calls to you to come and be saved and and redeemed by his blood. To know that he is the good shepherd. that He has laid down his life for the sheep. So in conclusion, we see that there are three characteristics of wolves, and these are that they are idolaters, they are hypocrites, and they are resistors. And Stephen demonstrates that these these Jewish leaders, they are wolves, and that they are the true blasphemers. They have made a mockery of God's Word. They have rejected the beautiful declaration of God's word. They have killed prophet after prophet. And they have killed the prophet that God sent, the one who even Moses himself spoke about. They killed Jesus Christ. They ultimately are the ones who deserve death. Stephen does not deserve death. He is he is innocent of the charge. Yet, let us know the glorious tension of the gospel that's being presented here, even in this sermon. These wolves were great sinners, but the gospel of Jesus Christ is powerful to save. This is why I had us read Acts 8, verse 1. Read in Acts 8, verse 1, Now Saul was consenting to his death. Saul was in league with these wolves. Saul was in league with, with these hypocrites, these, these stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart. Yet Christ, in his mercy, saved Saul. He saved this blasphemer, this idolatry, this hypocrite. And what hope there is for us in that. As we see our own sinfulness our own departure from God's Word. Let's know that Christ is powerful to save, that we have a good shepherd who loves his sheep and gave himself for them. Let that ever be an encouragement for us as we guard ourselves from wolves. Let us pray. Father and our God, we come before you. Lord, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for the warnings that we find in your word. We're thankful for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Good Shepherd. Lord, we pray that you would ever keep us from walls. Lord, you would grant us discernment to be kept from error and from ungodliness. Lord, we pray that we would ever grow in our love for you, that we would be diligent students of the Scriptures, that we would know what it is to have communion with you and hear the voice of our shepherd calling to us. Lord, bless us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.